Well, if you would, uh, turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen. If this is uh, the first time you're here, uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I want to let you know that we're really glad that you're here. I hope that you've already been welcomed. I hope that you've already experienced hospitality, and, uh, and I hope that, uh, that you come back. Um, so let's dive in. Uh, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We'll read to verse 14 together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I'm gonna pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would remind us of the truth that some of us already believe and convince us of the truth that some of us not yet believe. That there is life after death and that because of that life after death, the life that we live now matters. And that the only way to experience abundant life is through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would remind us and convince us of these facts and these truths this morning, but also show us the hope that is bound up within these truths and how they bring us into the light out of the darkness. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for coming, for living, for dying, and most of all, thank you for rising. I pray that by the power of your spirit we would go from here today profoundly changed by this truth. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, it's Easter. It is Resurrection Sunday and you're here. And that says something. You're here. You could have slept in this morning. You could have gone and, and got brunch somewhere but you came here. You could be uh, watching a baseball game or you could be going for a hike and, and enjoying the sunshine before it turns to rain and maybe even snow tomorrow. 
Like, you could have capitalized on this day of sunshine, but you chose to come here. And that says something. It says something. It says something about the fact that we, we raise this question on Resurrection Sunday, or we deal with this question, that, that, that of life after death. Life after death. And, and if I would this morning, I'm, I'm gonna maybe put you guys into some boxes. Nobody likes to be put into boxes, I know. But, but categorically speaking, if I were to, to guess this morning about where you're at this morning, I believe that some of you are here to be reminded. Some of you want to, to, to come this morning to be reminded of Jesus' his death and his new life. You came to be reminded of what that implies for you, what that means for you. You came to be reminded because you, you need that hope because it helps you live. And so be reminded this morning. But others of you, you're here and you would probably say, I actually don't believe in life after death. I don't believe in life after death. Um, but I believe that I can have an abundant life now. I can work for my best life now. And I know that in order to have that best life now, I need to have some moral boundaries. I need to have some, some parameters. And the Christian religion itself, though I don't believe it promises eternal life, it can provide me with some structure that's beneficial for this life now. And so I'm here to participate in the religious activity of it. You might be here this morning and you would say that um, you do believe in a life after death, but that there's many ways to get there. Uh, th there's many paths to experience that higher plane of existence or to reach that God or, or that heaven or, or whatever it is that's good and beneficial out there. There are many paths to that, and Jesus just happens to be one that is, is convenient for you. Culturally, it works for you. Right? You, you live in an area of the country that is highly churched to some degree. Maybe your family, your relationships, they're, they're, they're Christian. And so it is better to go and spend Easter dinner with, with family, having come and, and worshiped in a setting like this, this Jesus who is one of many ways to God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. And so I want to let you know what my purpose is in, in this this message. The first is I, I want to either remind you of the hope that you have, I want to remind you, or I want to convince you. I want to convince you of three things specifically. First, there is life after death. There is life after death. Second, because there's life after death, how you live this life matters. Because there's life after death, you can and you should live this life unto God. And third, the only way to experience the fullness of that life after death is through Jesus Christ. So that's my purpose uh, this morning. And, uh, and I want you to know that I'm going to base all of, all of my convincing and reminding on the Bible, and Scripture. And, uh, and here's why. Uh, the New Testament begins with uh, four what we call gospels. They're stories about the incarnation of God in the flesh, God becoming human, uh, the, then this God living a, a righteous, sinless life, then dying a substitutionary death, and then bodily rising from the dead. 
First four gospels all proclaim this message and actually hold it as the highest doctrine of what we believe as Christians. And subsequently, every other writer of the New Testament, from Acts to Revelation, every single writer of the New Testament holds this up as the truth, the supreme truth of what it means to be Christian is to believe and embrace this Jesus, the Son of God, who lived, who died, who rose again, and who now sits at the right hand of the Father. The whole New Testament is based on that. Now, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament was about pointed to this. Every prophet pointed to it. Every king pointed to him. Every priest pointed to him. Every sacrifice, every religious activity in the Old Testament, it all points to this truth of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And so here's my, my point and why I'm basing this message on Scripture. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, if he, if he isn't God who, who became a little tiny baby, right? if that's not true, none of this matters. None of this matters, okay? So if, if God did take on flesh and he came, but he didn't live a sinless life, if he was like one of those Greek gods, if you remember Greek mythology, the Greek gods were just as bad as the people that worshiped them, right? Just as depraved. If God was like that, when he came, he took on flesh, he lived that kind of a life, a depraved life. If he wasn't righteous, None of this matters. None of this is worthy of your time. Okay, if he did take on flesh, if he did live a sinless life, but he didn't die a substitutionary death, if he didn't die for you, for your sin, for the thing that separates between you and God, if he didn't actually die, none of this matters. And lastly, if he didn't rise, if he came, he lived, and he died, but he didn't come back from the grave, then you need to know that this book is as powerless as that rotting corpse in a tomb. It doesn't matter. Don't give your life to it. Don't obey it. Don't even bother reading it, because at best, it's just a noble fiction if it's not true that Jesus rose from the dead. Don't waste your time. In other words, what what you could be said is this morning, you should have slept in. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there is no life after death, Jesus is dead now. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied if Jesus isn't alive. In other words, you should have gone and had that brunch. You should have taken that walk in the park. You should have enjoyed the sunshine. You should eat and drink and be merry and stop wasting your time coming to places like this. However, if it is true, it changes everything. Paul finishes that statement 
That section of scripture in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For is, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We as Christians hold that he did come, he did die, he did rise, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we believe. And that is good news. There is a resurrection. There is life after death. And how you live this life matters. And there's only one way to it. My plan this morning is we're going to do two things. We're going to walk through the resurrection story. And then we're going to uh, dive into Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at this eye of what does it mean for us that he lives. So let's begin. Jesus was killed on a Friday. Before the sun even rose, he had already been convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death. He was taken to Pilate, where he alone could order the execution by crucifixion. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was taken to the place of the skull, a hill known as Golgotha. He was stripped naked, he was laid down on two large wooden beams and he was nailed to them. And then they stood him up in front of the world to see. The gospels say that a darkness fell over the land, a supernatural darkness, starting at about noon when he was crucified. He suffered in agony for hours, never once cursing the people who were cursing him. And at the end, he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. It is finished. On Friday night, we talked about exactly what it is that he accomplished and what it is he finished. But he died. And he was taken down from that cross, and because of the time of the day, they hurriedly taken, took him to a tomb, which was close by, a tomb carved out of the hollow of a rock, his body was wrapped in linen cloth, laid in the tomb, and a big stone sealed the entry. Roman soldiers were ordered to guard this tomb to prevent the, the disciples or the followers of Jesus from stealing that body. On Saturday, all was quiet. It was Sabbath. But then on Sunday morning, before dawn, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled the stone away. And when those Roman soldiers saw them do this, it, it says that they fell like dead men. Meanwhile, a group of women, one of them, Mary Magdalene, was coming to Jesus' tomb to prepare Jesus' body properly since it had been so hastily buried. And as they're walking to the tomb, she's wondering, and they're wondering aloud, how will we roll that stone away? But when they got there, they found out they didn't need to. It was rolled away, but when they looked inside, they found that it was empty. Mary Magdalene ran back to the disciples, saying that his body had been taken. Disciples, most of them, didn't even believe her. But two did, John and Peter, and they, they ran to the tomb. John beat Peter, but he didn't go inside. Peter went inside, and he, and he found the tomb empty. The, the linen cloths were just laying there, and the, the face cloth that Jesus had over his head was folded neatly and laid to the side. And they wondered at this. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene had, had come back to the tomb, and she's weeping. 
two angels of the Lord said to her, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He told you that he would die, and he told you that he would rise. And still in unbelief, she turns and practically runs into the gardener, or who she thinks is the gardener. But he looks at her and he says, Mary. And her eyes are open and she realizes it's Jesus and she falls down at his feet and she grabs his feet and he says, don't, don't cling to me. I'm not here long. After that, he appears to two men who are walking on this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. As they're walking along, they're discussing everything that's, that's happened and, and he says to them, what are you, are, what are you talking about? They don't realize it's him, that it's Jesus. And, and they say, well, th- there was this prophet and we believed in him and we thought he was the one and, and yet he died, he was killed and it's over and we don't know what to do. And then he says, oh, let me explain the scriptures to you. And from Moses through all the prophets, he explained to them how the Messiah was supposed to come, supposed to suffer, supposed to die and supposed to rise. They get to their destination and they invite him to stay for a meal. And he does. And he takes bread and he rips it apart and he hands to them the the bread and their eyes are opened in that moment and they realize who he is. But he disappears. That same night, the disciples were hiding in an upper room with doors locked in fear of the religious leaders and Jesus came and stood among them and he showed them the scars, his hands, his side, and they marveled. But not all of them were there. And so he continued to show up over the upcoming weeks. In fact, at one point, it said that he appeared to 500 people at once. 500 people at once. There is a resurrection from the dead. There is an eternal life. At one point, when when Jesus is satisfied and when he is ready and when enough people have seen him, he gathers his disciples together, he commissions them, he tells them, I've made you disciples, now you go make more disciples of me and you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended into heaven. The Apostle Paul says that spiritually speaking, those of us who are in Christ are seated with him in the heavenlies already seated with him. There is life after death. And Jesus is the firstborn of the dead that proves that. This is the story of the resurrection. Paul takes this and helps us understand the implications of it. So look with me at Romans chapter six, beginning verses one and two again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? There's two really important things here. The first is a legalistic question. Here's the truth. Every religion proclaims that to receive salvation, to reach some God or to reach some higher plane or to reach some other form of existence, there are hoops that you have to jump through. There are things that you must do or there are things that you need to avoid. There's some sort of work that you are responsible for in order to attain to that life or to that existence. Every single religion preaches a so-called gospel of works, not Christianity. The Christian faith says that the work required to have eternal life has been accomplished already for you by Jesus Christ at the cross and through his resurrection. The work is actually done. All you need to do is receive this grace as a gift. 
Now here's what happens if you preach a gospel of grace. People will question it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon like 70 years ago in in preaching on uh, Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, this is how you know if you're preaching the gospel or not. If people say, hey, you can't preach that, you can't tell people that salvation is free, then you know you're preaching grace. Then you know you're preaching grace. Works is readily accepted. People will always say, yes, I can sign up for that. Yes, I can accomplish that. Yes, I could pick myself up by my bootstraps. Yes, I can do it. I can do it. Grace says, no, you can't do it. It's already been done for you. And it's much harder to accept. So people question it. People are questioning Paul here, saying, hey, how how can you tell people this is free? You can't tell people that, that they can have salvation without doing anything for it. You can't tell people that. Paul says, well, actually, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the gift is free, but along with the gift, they also receive the gift giver. They become united with him. The second thing to look at here, he says, uh, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Rhetorical question, we can't. If you're dead to sin, you can't still live in it, or at least you shouldn't. If you're dead to sin, that means that sin's no longer the the primary authority over your life. Jesus is. So you shouldn't live in it. And he's going to explain the rest of this in more detail. Look at verses uh, 3 through uh, 5 with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we should certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul actually points to the symbol of baptism. We as Christians, we, we, hold to, we, we take of two sacraments. First is communion. We remember that on the night before Jesus died, he took bread, he broke it, he told us that this was representative of his body. He took a cup and said that that cup was representative of his blood. And so often we take or partake of communion with one another to remind ourselves of the truth. But you see, what communion is, is it's an outward sign of something that's happened inside. Baptism, likewise. There's nothing about this water, there's nothing about this tank that is special or unique. But the act of going into the ground is is the person saying, I am united with Christ. I'm united with him in his death. I'm united with him in his burial. And I'm united with him in his resurrection. That's what Paul points out here. First, what does it mean to be united with Christ in his death? Do you know that your whole body of sin... Your history, your resume, this ugly masterpiece that you have painted with your words and actions and attitudes of sin, this whole body of sin, it was laid on Jesus at the cross. He was nailed to him that day, 2,000 years ago. It died with him. Do you know your sin died with Jesus? Is that good news? Your sin died with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. It's no more. It, it can't reign and rule over you. It's dead. 
The second thing he says there is being baptized into Christ means being united with him in his burial. You know why we need memorial services and funerals? It helps us draw something to a conclusion, right? There's something about the finality of this that helps us grasp that we will no longer see this person in this life. It helps us bring it to a conclusion. There's finality in burial. You know that when that casket drops into the ground, there is no heart, hope that there's a heartbeat. It's over. It's done. Now, your sins, nailed to Jesus on the cross, taken down, entombed with him with a big old rock that sealed it. And when Jesus came out of that tomb, he left them there. Your sins are buried. They're buried. They're done. They're gone. Is that good news? Your past history of fear and lust and rebellion and hate and anger, all of that is gone. He continues. The being baptized into Christ means that we have been united with him in his resurrection. Coming out of the water is the picture of, of the resurrected self, the new self that you get to have because he has now provided another option for you. Before Jesus, we had no other option but sin. Sin was our only taskmaster. Sin was the only thing that reigned and ruled over us. It was in charge, but Jesus came and killed it and now we have another option. Jesus, new life, a life lived unto God. Paul then, he begins to put some application to this. The application begins with the head. It begins with what you should know. He says this, Romans 6, 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We know it's dead. Do you know that? You see, if you know it, then it should change how you think about your life. It should change the decisions that you make. It should change the choices that you make in regards to what matters and what doesn't. What reigns and rules over you? It's not sin. Do you know that? And Paul says that it's something you need to know, but it's also something you need to believe. It, seems, it needs to travel from your head to your heart. And so in verses 8 through 11, we see more application, more belief application. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that you're dead to sin? Do you believe that you're dead to sin? Do you believe that you have a new life? Do you believe that you can live this life? You see, Romans 8, 11 says this, that you've been given to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and if you have received this gift and the gift giver, that spirit lives in you. It lives in you, and now you have the ability 
to live for him. Before you couldn't. That by the power of the Spirit you can. Do you believe that? From your head to your heart to your hands to practical application. Look with me at 12 verses to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your, mem- present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Three practical things that knowing and believing should lead to. The first is this. You don't let sin reign. You don't let sin reign. See, once you didn't have a choice. Before Jesus, sin was your boss. No question. Sin was your taskmaster. That was it. You had no choice. But it seems to me that there are a lot of Christians out there who continue to look at sin like it's the bully on the playground. It keeps coming over and knocking you down and taking your lunch money, and you're so helpless to stand up to do it and do anything about it. And Paul says, don't let it. Don't let sin, you can say no. You can say no to this because of the power of the Spirit living inside you. Second thing he says is do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The best picture I can give you of this is your smartphone. How many of you have a smartphone that the way to unlocking it is to present your face to it? Okay, so through this, this device, some of you, if, if God said, throw that phone away, you'd be like, cool, no problem. Some of you would be like, uh-uh, can't. Because a thousand, I think the actually statistics are that 2,000 times a day a person with an iPhone touches the phone. That's how many times a day you're presenting yourself to this thing. And through it, what do you feed? You have a problem with gossip. And so you'll spend so much time with your friends texting about him or her. You have a problem with self-esteem or or the need of people's approval or affirmation. And so you're using social media and you're tweeting and you're you're Snapchatting and you're you're posting and you're looking for the comment. You're looking for the thumbs up. And every time you get that, there's this burst. This burst of, of, of positive hormones shooting through your brain like it's an addiction because you need that affirmation. You need the approval of people and so you're going to your email and you're checking it hour after hour after hour. You need your boss to know that you're on top of it. You need your coworkers to see how competitive you are. Like you need so much. And not only is all this fear there, but there's all of this lust for anything that you could possibly imagine. You go to Pinterest, and if you can dream it, it's there. And you go to Zillow because there's a better house out there with more square footage and a double sink and a bigger closet. And as far as pornography, the sky's the limit. Fear and lust that we are presenting ourselves to hundreds, if not thousands, times a day. And you say, ah, that's not a problem for me. If God were to tell you to throw your cell phone away, could you do it? Could you do it? How many of you would feel like God is asking you to cut off a limb because you're so dependent upon it? 
You're so dependent upon it. It would feel like God is saying, chop off, I don't know, your right hand. Matthew 5, 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Your phone's not causing you to sin and your right hand doesn't cause you to sin. But the point is clear. Don't present yourself to this body of sin. And you now have the power of the Spirit to not do that. And I think that so many of us, we we labor under this idea that we're still slaves and we have to go to it. We have to. We have no other choice. I need my phone for my work. Quit your job. But I have to have that job in order to afford this house. Buy a smaller house. But I have to have this life. Why? Why? Because here's why. You're trying to make this life heaven. This life is your heaven. And in the deepest desires of your heart, you are trying to find here and now And because you will always be disappointed in all of that, you will never find satisfaction. But if in heaven the deepest desires of your heart are met, then you don't have to find them now. Imagine how freeing that could be. Imagine how freeing that could be. You have an option. You don't have to present your members to sin. You can present yourself to God. And see, that wasn't an option before. Because before, there was an, an unpassable chasm between you and God. There was no way you could get to him. There was no way you could cross over. There was no way for you to have a relationship with God. So God came to us and he poured out his blood for us so that we could enter into the Holy of Holies. We could have access to him. Now we can present ourselves to God. We can actually go into his presence. We actually are adopted by him and we're called his sons and his daughters. We get to have God. Isn't that good news? I want you to consider that for a moment. We talk so much about heaven. I think some of us long for heaven for like the, the materialistic stuff that we're looking forward to. But, but if you had heaven without God, would you still want it? Or should you want God? Should you want him? Consider that the deepest longings of your heart are not for stuff, but for him. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we begin to wrap this up. First of all, for those of you who came this morning to be reminded of this hope that you have, I hope that you have been reminded. But here's the first question Are you living a life unto God or unto sin? See, your sin's dead, your sin's buried, you have new life in Him. Are you living that life? because you have the power to now because of the Holy Spirit. Is that the life you're living or are you living a life unto sin? Second question. Can this life fully satisfy the deepest longings of your heart? If you were here this morning, you would say, I don't believe that there's a life after death. And so I'm going to make heaven now. I'm gonna have my best life now. I'm gonna go after 
and I'm going to make this life as full and as beautiful and as abundant as I can. Do you think that it's possible that it can actually satisfy the deepest longings of your heart? Do you think it can really, really satisfy what's deep down? See, if it can't, how hopeless is that? Third, have you considered how the way of Jesus is different than all other ways? I think that it's really popular in our culture to say there are many ways to God and many ways to heaven. And what I found is, is that most people who say that actually haven't explored those other ways. It's very nice in our culture to say that. It's great. It, it's, it, it, that way you're not exclusive about anything. You're open-minded and stuff. It's cool. However, have you actually looked at all of those other teachings? Have you compared the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of Buddha? Have you compared the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of Muhammad? Have you compared the teachings of Jesus with Mary Baker Eddy? Like, when you do that, you will find such deep, disparaging uh, contradictions. Like, it's not possible that all ways lead to God. It's not. And I know we live in a culture that thinks that if you, you dream about something hard enough, it comes to reality, but that's not the truth. It's not the truth. Have you considered those other ways? You see, it's only through Jesus. It's only through Jesus. There is a life after death, and how you live this life unto God, and you can, by the power of the Spirit, how you live this life unto God matters because there's life after death. But there's only one way. There is only one way, and this is how I know. Buddha is dead, and Muhammad is dead, and Mary Baker Eddy is dead, and L. Ron Hubbard is dead. The list could go on. There is only one. There's only one with historical counts of a resurrected life. Up to 500 people saw him at once. There's only one God who has come back from the dead. All of these other leaders claim to know what's on the other side. There's only one who's actually been there, and that's Jesus. And he said, I go to make a prepare, prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. I want to transition now to our time of baptism. Time of baptism. Now, uh, this morning, uh, during this hour, there, there are two uh, young people who um, have requested to be baptized. And um, they can go ahead and, and get ready uh, now. Um, but while they're doing that, um, during the first gathering, we actually didn't have anybody uh, who, who wanted to be baptized. However, uh, out of the audience, four people came forward to be baptized last hour. So here's the deal. There's a full tank of water right here, and it's warm. It's warm. And I gotta ask you, like, Jesus, he was baptized, and he said that he was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he sets an example for us to follow. He was baptized, then he tells us to make disciples and baptize. Why would we think that we're not supposed to get baptized? The other thing to consider is when you look at the New Testament and when people were baptized, they were usually baptized immediately upon confessions of faith. 
In other words, there isn't some sort of varsity level of Christianity that you need to attain to in order to be baptized. It's actually very simple faith. It's a, it's a gift of grace, not of works. I don't want to say that. Like, Jesus, the moment you come out of this tank is not going to love you any more than the moment you went into it. His love for you is already there. This is not something you do to, to earn his faith. This is something you do because you love him. And you need to understand that God's love language is obedience. And he has called you to obey, even in this. And I have to ask you, if you would say, I'm a Christian, I know that my sins are dead, I know that they're buried in the tomb, I know that I have been raised to new life with Jesus, I am a Christian, and I have accepted this gift of grace by faith, and I have accepted this gift giver, but I've never been baptized. Why? Do, do you know in, in the New Testament, people actually partake of baptism before they take of communion. How many times have you partaken of communion? Making a similar statement of faith. So what's to stand in your way from right now being baptized? Maybe it's the fact that uh, you're not dressed in the right clothes. We actually have some clothes out there. Not a whole lot, but we have some clothes out there. But if we don't have clothes in the right size, what are wet clothes? Got a dryer at home? I do. Give, you know, I'll take care. Like, seriously, wet clothes, is that what's standing in your way? I'm not going to make you drown your phone in there. You could leave it out. You could take your shoes off. Like, what's standing in your way? Uh, it's it's the, the right people aren't here. Like, I need, I need certain members of my family if they were here. Look, your audience is one. It's Jesus. If you would say, well, I, I, I'm worried about what these people might think of me. You know what these people are going to do for you? They're going to clap and cheer like crazy. Like, what would stand in your way from following Jesus in obedience and be baptized today? Why? I'm going to pray. The band's going to come. And if, if this is the time of your baptism, then you can go out those doors. And my mom will actually be standing out there with some clothes. If they don't fit, empty your pockets and come back in. Let's do this. Heavenly Father. When we consider what you have done for us, while we were yet sinners, your son died for us. While we were your enemies, you came for us. When we sinned and rebelled against you and went into the darkness, you came into the darkness after us. You have done all that is necessary to destroy the effects of sin. One day you will come back and all of this, all of this won't matter because we'll get to have you. And in you find every deep desire and longing of our heart is met in you in ways we had no idea. And we will find deep, deep satisfaction in you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life, 
for your death, for your resurrection. Thank you for the example you set. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit we would recognize that we are dead to sin and alive to you and we would live out of that power. In Jesus' name.